Greetings. This is Douglas Gimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, and this is Understanding Edge. Joining me today is my boss, Bill Zox, Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income here at Diamond Hill, as well as a Portfolio Manager on the High Yield Strategy. Bill's been with the firm since 2001, has been managing high yield assets for nearly that entire time. Also joining me is John McLean, Portfolio Manager on the High Yield Fund as well. And John's been with the firm for five and a half years after spending time at both Standard Life and Nationwide Insurance. Today, Bill and John are going to join me to discuss the history of high yield strategies at Diamond Hill, including both corporate credit and high yield, the uh, impact of electronic trading within the high yield market, as well as what differentiates this product and strategy from the competitors that we see out in the high yield universe. Thank you and enjoy. Bill, I think, uh, you know, it's really important to understand our philosophy and process. And this podcast is talking about the, the fifth anniversary of the High Yield Fund. But, but you can't uh, talk about that fund without, you know, talking about the history. So let's talk a little bit about the Corporate Credit Fund first. Uh, and then I'll follow up with some questions on the High Yield Strategy. Sure. I think it, it is helpful to understand the evolution of corporate credit if you want to understand how we, how and why we started the high yield strategy in December of 2014. And corporate credit going back to its inception in 2002, we did not start with a benchmark or a peer group when we started corporate credit. What we started with was absolute objectives. And we describe those absolute objectives today as inflation plus 3% on the low end and 7% nominal on the high end, each measured over rolling five-year periods. And we want to achieve those objectives with as little risk as possible. And if you go back to 2008, I took over as lead portfolio manager. And at that time, we decided to focus entirely on corporate bonds. But our universe then and now, our full opportunity set consisted of both investment grade and high yield corporate bonds. If you go to May of 2010, from about that time on, we've been largely focused on the high yield portion of the corporate bond market to achieve those objectives that I discussed earlier. So really, we did not think of ourselves as a high yield fund, or I did not think of myself as a high yield manager until sometime in that 2010 to 2014 time period. It was really an evolution. And Morningstar did not classify us as a high-yield fund until the end of 2012. So that's probably when we started to think of ourselves as a high-yield fund. And, and we're happy with that. We, we like for corporate credit to be classified in the Morningstar high-yield category. Now, if you look back over the last five years and the last 10 years, both periods we've compounded in corporate credit at a at about 7%, right at the top end of our absolute objectives. And over the trailing five-year period, that puts us near the top of the Morningstar high-yield category. And we did that with about 75% of the volatility of the category. Over the trailing 10-year period, we're right around the top quartile of the category with about 60% of the volatility of the category. So that shows you the risk-adjusted nature of what we're trying to do in corporate credit. 
we had to take a little bit more risk over the last five years, but still much less risk than a typical high-yield fund to achieve those objectives over the last 10, even less risk relative to the Morningstar high-yield bond category. What was the impetus for launching the high-yield strategy back in December of 2014? John McLean joined us, and he had a lot of energy, as he still does. He was uh, really a fantastic manager, and he, he continues to get better. And one of the early things that he did when he joined us was to say, why don't we start a more conventional high-yield strategy? And uh, at the time, you know, I'm reminded now of Giannis, the great basketball player for the Milwaukee Bucks, who <laughs> probably went to his coach over the offseason and said, Coach, I'd like to start shooting more threes. And his coach said, uh, yeah, that's fine, rather than telling him, no, I just want you to keep taking it to the hoop, because Giannis has all sorts of capabilities, and that was a very natural extension of what he was doing, and it's really improved their team dramatically. I see the sort of the same thing when, when John came to me and said, why don't we start a more conventional high-yield strategy in 2014? Now, I think John has uh, a lot of creative ideas, and, and we need to know when uh, it, it's a natural extension of what we're doing and when it probably doesn't fit. The high-yield strategy, as I said, more conventional in its objectives, but not any different in its approach. So both corporate credit and high-yield benefit from the same structural advantages or edge in the marketplace. But the high-yield strategy, the objective is to be one of the top performing funds. And we think the, the best way to measure high-yield performance is relative to peers because the benchmark is not investable. The best metric is relative to peers. Like everything that we do at Diamond Hill, we take a very long-term approach to the strategy so we measure that performance over five rolling five-year periods, which is very important because that means we don't have any incentive to chase an overvalued market quarter by quarter. Uh, we have the ability to get more defensive when appropriate and more aggressive when appropriate in the high-yield market because we measure everything over that long-term five-year time horizon. And that's, and that's a little bit different, I think, than what you'd see in the high-yield market, right? Is it you're talking about getting defensive and high yield, and people think about high yield as very aggressive. But part of our approach, and I think what differentiates us or helps to differentiate us, is the fact that we will get defensive. We will take a position that's not aggressive high yield that maybe someone would be expecting. Right. If you're not too benchmark-oriented in the short term, the high yield asset class is actually a really good asset class to get defensive. Unlike uh, many asset classes where the, the risk is relatively uniform, there is very significant dispersion in the high-yield asset class in terms of the risk and reward opportunities. So we do have the ability to get very defensive at times in high-yield, and, and that's very important to know when the right time is to be defensive in high-yield, and at other times, uh, it's the right time to be aggressive in high-yield. And and I think that's one of the hallmarks of our strategies is to know where we are in that cycle and then to position the strategy appropriately. But just to, to summarize the differences between corporate credit and high yield, in corporate credit, the client is giving us the latitude to vary that risk uh, quite significantly uh, because we are tr aiming for those absolute objectives rather than 
uh, trying to be one of the best performing funds. And at times, to achieve those objectives, hopefully we will be uh, very high up in the category. At other times, uh, we, can, we can do it with less risk and our performance does not need to be quite as strong in the category. In high yield, the client has made the decision to bear the full risk of the high yield market over the long term. And our objective then is to deliver to that client the best returns we can relative to peers, again, over that long term holding period. Yeah, so, you know, I think there's a couple things here that uh, Bill was talking about that are really important to touch on. One, the high-yield strategy was a natural extension of what we were already doing. We were already investing in high-yield securities. Um, Two, when we're looking at uh, any new strategy at Diamond Hill, I think we have to think about, do we have the core competency and do we have edge? The name of the podcast, Understanding Edge. (laughs) You know, I think Michael Mobison articulated very well um, a number of different types of edge you can have in the marketplace, whether that's behavioral, analytical, information, technical advantages in the marketplace. And high yield is an asset class that's inefficient and getting less efficient over time. Now, when we started this in 2014, uh, I don't think we necessarily thought the asset class was going to continue to get more and more inefficient. That has been the case. And really, we were also looking at, do our clients want it? And if you looked at how large the uh, asset class had grown from the financial crisis through the end of 2013. Going into 2014, we certainly felt like there was strong demand. And we certainly, uh, as investors in our own strategies, believe that the high-yield asset class is, is very beneficial for a diversified portfolio for asset allocators to look at that part of the market. So we felt like we could bring something to the table that was missing. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things you guys both have talked about uh, is performance. And I'm going to cheat a little bit and read off, read off my paper so I get the numbers right. But since its inception, so when we hit that five-year number um, in early December, since its inception, the high-yield fund has returned 7.98% annualized compared to the benchmark, which is the Ice Bamel High-Yield Index, uh, return of 5.59%. That performance as you've talked about, Bill, the goals is to rank in the top percentiles of the category. That performance places the fund in the first percentile in the Morningstar High Yield universe. What differentiates this strategy from the competition, from the benchmark, and how have you been able to maintain that edge over the past five years? So I think one of the things that's interesting that we didn't touch upon, but you say, look, we launched this strategy in December of 2014. Well, this goes to, again, um, I think a competitive advantage that Diamond Hill has. As Bill mentioned, I joined in June of 2014, and we had a high-yield fund up and running by December. And we had discretion about when we wanted to start that fund, and it was certainly intentional. If you remember what was going on at the end of November in 2014, right, Saudi Arabia had just kind of shocked the world, and oil prices were starting their initial collapse. So when there is fear and panic in the market, that is certainly a um, good opportunity for us as long-term investors to get into um, into the asset class. And I think when you talk about um, how we've been able to deliver results, it's really the same type of um, full investment philosophy that permeates all of our strategies, bottom-up security selection. 
within high yield as an asset class, it's very important to protect capital. And mm-hmm. I think we've demonstrated that in making money in 2015 and making money in 2018 when the asset class was uh, negative. So it's that protection of capital that's really helped us compound at a faster rate than the index and then, and then our peers. But you also have to understand that there's a time to play defense and there's a pl- time to play offense. And the asset class is highly tactical. The market was falling off a cliff at the end of 2015. It was falling off a cliff at the end of 2018, and it quickly snaps back in early 2016 and early 2019. So you have to be ready to go. You have to have a view on value, where bonds should trade, uh, what levels we're willing to pay for the risk that we're bearing, both from a fundamental standpoint as well as for the bond structure. And we have to be nimble. That's a huge advantage for us. Our size uh, and that capacity discipline that we have is a huge advantage relative to the competition. So let's expand on that a little bit. So one of the things that we talk about is is one of the benefits that we have is our size and we're nimble, as you were just saying. Um, but electronic trading, uh, it's become more and more prevalent. It's, it's one of the tools that we utilize. So maybe talk a little bit about how electronic trading allows you to be nimble and to take advantage of you know, at times the bigger players in the market to the benefit of our clients. Sure. Right when John joined 2014, we really were just getting started on electronic platforms. And it has become a very important source of our edge in the intervening five and a half years. Uh, One thing that it allows us to do is to respond to requests for liquidity in the marketplace rather than going out and telling Wall Street what our agenda is every day. So instead of coming in and calling brokers up and telling them we're looking to buy these bonds at these prices or we're looking to sell these bonds at these prices, we instead are looking to see what the agenda is of other market participants and then we can respond in an anonymous fashion. Nobody knows that it's us. And that information leakage is very costly. So it's been a a huge source of advantage for us over the last five and a half years. When we think about capacity, we want to make sure that that continues to be uh, an important advantage for us and that we can continue to operate uh, without telling Wall Street what our agenda is every day. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think coming in in 2014, if you said that we were going to be doing nearly half of our trading electronically by 2019, I would have been surprised by that. But that, again, shows how markets evolve and we have to be evolving with markets and really being on the forefront of using technology and figuring out uh, opportunities that we can capitalize on that others can't. And when you look at the electronic trading platforms, particularly market access, what we have there, as Bill mentioned, is anonymity, but it's also um, a much better price discovery tool. We get better information back from that system than we do from brokers. We don't know where our information goes with brokers, but we can control our information on that platform. We also pay a smaller fee, Mm -hmm. which is very important for our clients. We're very cognizant of trading costs and really have been able to turn costs into a benefit. And a great deal of that is through providing liquidity and providing liquidity through uh, electronic trading. And then you look at, again, how the market has evolved over time, really the use of ETFs, the growth of ETFs, though the assets haven't grown as much, but it's really who uses it and why. Mm -hmm. Um, And we can identify when we're on the other side of the trade with the ETFs. And they prefer to put 
bid lists and offer lists out in competition electronically to get what they think to be the best pricing. But what we've seen, again, how our market has evolved and gotten less efficient, transparency is bad for liquidity. And we can remain anonymous, but they are very transparent, um, one, in terms of their agenda, and two, uh, we can identify what's motivating them for that agenda. So at Diamond Hill, one of the things that we talk about, and we've talked about it with a variety of different portfolio managers, is the importance of credit research, um, and research in general, and how that you know fuels what we're doing within our portfolios, whether it's fixed or whether it's equity. Um, so talk a little bit about about the research team and how that benefits you know our clients, but then also if you can talk about what really differentiates this product when you're looking at the index, when you're looking at competitors, how are we different and how do we maintain uh, that difference over time? Sure. Well, we have a very deep research team at Diamond Hill, close to 30 industry specialists that support all of our strategies at Diamond Hill, and then John and I are interacting with that research team on a daily basis. We're all, almost all of us are on the same floor in Columbus, Ohio every day. So it's very easy for us to interact with them. And then we're looking for the best values in the high yield marketplace. And many of our peers have research teams that are just focused on the high yield market. They're not nearly as deep and they inevitably will start with the largest weights in the high yield market and spend their time, most of their time, on those largest weights. Whereas if we can't understand a large issue, and in many cases they're much more complicated capital structures or uh, the, the bond structures we don't like, uh, we won't spend any time on them. But if we find a wonderful opportunity at the right price that's three, four, five basis points in the index, we will spend our time there and we'll make that a very meaningful position in our high yield strategy. Uh, so that, I think, gives us a tremendous advantage over our peers. And in, it's also very important to be ready to go because the market moves very fast right now. It got extremely attractive in early 2016. It got very attractive again in late 2018. And we're ready to go with the credits that we know well. And when they get to the right price, we're ready to take advantage of that. And I think it's also information's readily available and out there, and it's what kind of information are you paying attention to? Right. You know, and I think we differentiate ourselves, again, because we're looking at value across the capital structure. We're forward-looking as opposed to backward-looking. That's really critically important, I think, to avoiding accidents and, and avoiding uh, defaults in, in the high-yield marketplace. We're also placing a strong emphasis on management teams. We call it their say-to-do ratio. <laughs> are you going to do what you say you're going to do? And really you get familiarity with covering these teams and companies for years and sometimes decades. The emphasis on how they're compensated. Uh, you know, a lot of these um, individuals are, are smart and people do what they're incented to do. So you look a perfect example of AT&T, a business where management compensation, part of it was determined by hitting a net debt leverage target. So if, if you're going to pay a management team to delever, they're going to delever. And that's really permeated in terms of energy. Going into 2013-14, management teams' equity prices and compensation were going up meaningfully for, from doing leveraged acquisitions. Then in probably 2018 and really in 2019, 
the equity investors have told management teams, we want return of capital, live within cash flow, return capital to us. And so management teams are doing what's best for getting their equity price up. That shift in mindset's critical when, when investing. Another thing that we talk about at Diamond Hill is, is long-term focus. So whether it's incentive compensation and how it's measured or whether it's performance, you know, how does that, that play into to what you're doing, that long-term temperament and how you're managing the portfolios over time? Sure, that, that really gives us our behavioral edge or behavioral advantage. And it's also related, I think, to our analytical edge in the marketplace. And the vast majority of our peers in the high yield universe are very short term oriented. And if a situation is going to take more than a quarter or two to play out, they're going to stay away from it uh, because they don't want to bear the career risk of being wrong for too long. Because we take a five-year view of our performance, uh, we have the ability to step into those situations where we have analytical resources focused on things that our peers are not even spending the time on. And then we have the long-term time horizon to let those situations play out. And sometimes they play out rather fast in reality. Other times they do take a while uh, before the fundamentals dictate the pricing of those bonds. But we're in a strong position to take advantage of those opportunities when many of our peers are running the other way. And we can do that as well because of our clients. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, again, kind of this behavioral advantage is curating the right type of client list. And I think that is uh, a testament to our sales team and uh, you know, finding like-minded individuals Right. So, so the strategy is not for everyone, uh, but you find the right clients that appreciate what we're doing and, and use the product as it's supposed to be used. Exactly. Um, one of the tenets of what we talk about uh, about Diamond Hill is capacity, and, and you guys mentioned that already. Um, so, you know, in the high yield space especially, you know, you see managers that maybe pledge to be, you know, 1.5 to 2 billion. Five years later, they're at five and a half billion. So they kind of disregard that capacity limit that they said. It's it's much more important here. So maybe talk a little bit about how you came to your capacity uh, estimates. What are those estimates? Uh, and, you know, how you think about that within the context of the entire industry. Sure. There, there are several factors on capacity, but one that we start with is how much of a bond in general are we comfortable owning so that we have the ability to sell that bond without moving the market against us excessively if we determine that we've made a mistake in our analysis. Uh, There are other reasons that we sell, but the the most difficult time to sell is if we realize that we've made a mistake in our analysis. And so we put that size at 10%. In general, we don't want to own more than 10% of a bond. We occasionally make exceptions for that if it's especially low risk and short in duration in particular. Uh, But in general, we do not own more than 10% of a bond. Then the next factor is, with that limitation, we want to have the ability to take a meaningful position across most of the issuers in the high-yield market. At that particular level, we, we arrive with something roughly between $4 billion and $6 billion in total high-yield capacity across all of our strategies. And the way we look at it, uh, the vast majority of the issuers in the high yield market at $5 billion in assets, we can take a $50 million 
position in, have a 1% position in that particular issuer. In terms of the percentage of issuers in the market, in terms of the value of the market, that represents almost all, you know, over 90% based on our calculations of the market value would be captured in that particular universe where we can take a 1% position uh, and, and not own more than 10% of the bond at $5 billion in assets. And that's very similar to the Russell 2000. And, and what we find interesting is the marketplace figured this out in the small cap equity universe, you know, probably two decades ago. And it's very uncommon for a capital allocator to be talking to a small cap equity manager with 10, 20, 30, 40 billion dollars in assets or more, because it's very difficult for that manager to differ from the Russell 2000 and to add value over that passive benchmark. Uh, but in the high yield space, that's still relatively common. There's very few high yield managers that close strategies, and the market is dominated by large pools of capital that would be much larger than you would see commonly in the small cap equity space now. Yeah, and you know, as I mentioned, and we've talked about the performance has been great, um, but they can't all be winners. So maybe talk uh, about one or two or, or just one that, that didn't work out, but because of that focus on capacity and the focus on not being overly concentrated, the ability to get out of uh, that position when things started to get a little dicey. One of the ones that didn't work out for us was McDermott, which is a publicly listed company. Um, they had a liquidity crunch in the middle of this year, and that's really the thing that uh, gets Bill and myself uh, nervous. And we saw that play out actually in 2018 from another company that we owned that didn't work out called Diebold, where the company uh, got into a liquidity crunch, and that's where you get an air pocket in um, price, and bond prices can just fall precipitously. And I think going into our uh, thesis on McDermott, we understood that there was the potential for liquidity issues. And that's why we sized the position much smaller than we did with Diebold. So it's understanding that situations uh, present themselves time and time again and learning from prior mistakes helped us at least get the position size uh, smaller. Now, it was probably a little north of 1% in high yield at its peak. Um, which sounds like a big position for most managers, but that's actually, again, how we differentiate ourselves is through portfolio construction. What Bill said absolutely reigns true in terms of what worked for equities, uh, high active share, looking different than your benchmark, uh, standing out as opposed to fitting in. We think that makes sense in high yield because it's really an asset class where in fixed income, getting the fundamentals matter more than getting a duration call, a commodity call, a currency call correct. That's not what we're trying to do. We're bottom-up fundamental security selection. So in terms of McDermott, we owned a little north of 1% of the outstanding issuance as well. It was a $1.3 billion bond. And once we figured out the thesis uh, had completely collapsed, uh, you know, as Bill mentioned, it's important to be able to exit a position without having material market impact costs on that day. And similar to Diebold, where we were able to exit our entire position in one day with effectively nobody knowing what we were doing, um, you know, that's kind of the key component of capacity discipline. We know that we're going to make mistakes, and, uh, you know, we want to be able to preserve the ability to get out of those mistakes. We've talked about, you know, how you look at the market and standing out 
by not fitting in. Um, one of the things with the high yield portfolio that, that I've noticed over the last year, and we've, we've talked quite a bit about it, uh, is we've actually initiated positions in investment grade outside of the high yield universe, but there's a, there's a legitimate reasoning for that. So maybe go through that as people are looking at the fund and they see that allocation. What's the thought process behind delving into the investment grade space, you know, based on what we're seeing in the marketplace right now? Yeah, I mean, we're fundamental investors at the heart of it. So anytime we can get excess compensation for less risk, we're more than happy to take a look at that, particularly, as you mentioned, that most high-yield managers are fairly constrained in terms of uh, going off of the the benchmark. And particularly, um, you talk about going up in quality into the investment-grade market while most allocators are saying, we're paying you to manage high yield capital. Well, we found opportunities where you could get high yield returns with investment grade risk. And really what it ended up being was equity returns with investment grade risk. And it's a function of the high yield investment grade market operating separately. Everybody in high yield this year was moving up in quality, but that meant moving to double Bs. And double Bs got into a position where they had very negative convexity exhibited where bond prices were trading on or above their call prices. So there was no more price appreciation left. With triple Bs, the vast majority of triple Bs have no call protection uh, associated with them and carry a make whole component, which means that if rates move precipitously lower or if spreads tighten precipitously, uh, bond prices can continue to go up. And that's what we saw with rates moving lower and with uh, spreads tightening pretty meaningfully. That gap between triple B and double B spreads, which has been talked about uh, some in the, in the marketplace, has been persistently tight. So for us, it doesn't cost us much in terms of carry to move up in credit quality meaningfully. So if we're somewhat cautious on the market and feel like we are very late cycle, um, exercising this free option effectively of, of moving up in quality, having a different source of liquidity and a different dynamic in terms of how those markets trade was, uh, I think, a valuable tool for us. And again, um, we really didn't own much investment grade in the fund until 2019. So I think that shows we're happy to go where we see value. You talk about tools in the toolkit. And really, when uh, Henry Sung and Mark Jackson joined us in 2016, we brought on a new expertise in high-yield asset-backed securities. And bringing in the expertise we started to see that there was a real value in that part of uh, the asset-backed market. And uh, again, so it's a way for us to differentiate ourselves where, again, I believe we're getting high-yield compensation for lower risk. That's mm-hmm. usually what we're doing. You look at a lot of high-yield managers, you may own equities, converts, uh, perpetuals, preferreds, things that exhibit more risk than the asset class in general. Um, that's not what we're, what we're trying to do. We're trying to hit our objectives, uh, bear the same type of risk as high yield, and, and place ourselves in the top uh, quartile or above of the category. So talking about the tools in the toolbox, essentially, the investment grade, structured product with, with Henry and Mark's expertise. One of the questions that I get a lot when I'm out in the field is, well, do you guys buy CLOs? Do you guys buy LEV loans? So maybe talk a little bit about why those aren't in the portfolio. Uh, and why you choose not to to go that route? Well, I've never liked loans. Um, I sound like a broken record here <laughs> talking about loans, but I believe that high yield bonds are a dominant asset class to loans 
over any meaningful period of time. And given that we have a very long time horizon in terms of our investment strategy, it doesn't really make sense for us to own loans. I think it's also operationally fairly onerous to do so. And when you look at CLOs, I think we have a differentiating view on the market where we, we don't necessarily think that's a permanent asset class. And, and I look at CLOs and I say they kind of paint by numbers. And, uh, you know, it's non-rational. It's a non-rational way to create a portfolio where you're targeting a war score and uh, you're really just trying to fill up a bucket. And I think there's a misalignment of incentives between CLO managers and CLO buyers. And they're a big part of the market. And uh, I think we've seen that there was such strong demand for loans from 14 to 18 that the quality of loans has deteriorated so substantially that um, you know I do have concerns about that part of the market. Is it going to bring down all of the you know U.S. financial market? Absolutely not. But it can certainly have a meaningful impact in the leverage finance space. We just don't feel like you're getting compensated. Uh, again, in that in that asset class, and as long-term investors, it's not something that we're particularly keen on. Well, guys, congratulations on the five years. Um, it's been a good run, great run. Uh, but now, uh, at this time of the podcast, I usually ask guests, you know, tell me something about yourselves that listeners may not know. Could be fun, could be interesting, could be boring. Uh, but just helping to get our clients and listeners to understand who we are as people uh, a little bit more. So, Bill, John, give me something that, that maybe people don't know about you. Well, I, I bought my first high-yield bond when I was in law school in, I believe, 1992. And I didn't even know what a high-yield bond was. I just knew the <laughs> company, which was uh, a local issuer, and the coupon was 14%. And I knew what returns had been in the equity market over a long period of time. And I thought, I think this company will survive, and that's a pretty good return. So uh, without really knowing much about what I was doing, <laughs> I bought my first high-yield bond at a pretty young age. Well, how did the thesis play out? Uh, that that bond did, uh, I held it to, to maturity and earned nice. an attractive return. Nice. I've run marathons for fun. I guess it's very cliche, long-term investing and uh, distance running, but I'm trying to run a marathon in all 50 states, um, a little more than halfway through, and hoping to get more runs in uh, in 2020. What was the most enjoyable marathon that you've run? Uh, well, so we're, we're based in Columbus, Ohio, and so there's a home bias, but I did one in 2011 with my grandfather when he was 90, and he became the ninth man. Uh, to accomplish running a marathon. I mean, it was walking, let's be honest, but it, <laughs> he, he moved 26.2 miles uh, over the course of a day and uh, was the ninth man to accomplish that. So that was definitely the coolest. We go down a hill to finish, and it's actually right by where our office is. And uh, we had like a squad car behind us going, again, very slow. <laughs> but uh, that, was, that was a lot of fun. Great. Well, thanks, guys, for joining me. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll do this again sometime soon. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.